Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today, we are going to look at the second and third Sundays after Pentecost. Now, we celebrated Pentecost two weeks ago, and the week after that, we celebrated Trinity Sunday, which is the first Sunday after Pentecost. Now, we're going to be looking at the second Sunday after Pentecost, and the next week, we'll be looking at the third Sunday after Pentecost. And then it'll go in that cycle all the way till we get to the season of Advent. Okay, let me quickly explain what's going on. In the first half of the liturgical season, we have the beginning of the season, the beginning of the calendar starts with Advent, which is four weeks long, and we look for the coming of Jesus. We are waiting for the coming of Jesus. And Jesus comes. He's born on Christmas Day, as all of you know. And then we celebrate one or two Sundays that have to do with Christmas. First Sunday after Christmas. Second Sunday after Christmas. Okay. After that is Epiphany, where Jesus is going to, he's going to be grown up and he's going to appear. Now, the first major feast day regarding the Epiphany, of course, is the Magi come and offer him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then we have several Sundays where we celebrate the appearing of Jesus. And then we move into the season of Lent. And we celebrate that for five good weeks, beginning with Ash Wednesday, which is uh, present during the last Sunday after the Epiphany. Then we celebrate Holy Week. That is the week beginning with Palm Sunday where Jesus comes into um, Jerusalem with great fanfare, great excitement. And by the end of the week, he is crucified on Good Friday and he is buried on Holy Saturday. He's actually buried on a Good Friday, but we celebrate his burial on Holy Saturday. And we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Day, Easter Sunday. Then we celebrate, in fact, we just got finished doing this, the seven Sundays of Easter. Second Sunday of Easter, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. And that's followed by the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, which occurs 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, we have Ascension Day. So Jesus dies, Good Friday, buried, rises from the dead, Easter Day. 40 days later, he ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit comes. The week after that, Trinity Sunday, the first Sunday after um, Pentecost. Trinity Sunday kicks that off, and we celebrate the Holy Trinity, which we talked about last week. Now we are in the second Sunday after Pentecost, and if you are looking at the lectionary very closely, it would be under proper seven. Now the reason the propers are there is that the date for um, the day of Pentecost uh, is movable because Easter is movable. And so Trinity Sunday is movable. So we set that up according to the propers. And those of you that were with me the last couple of weeks when I talked about the day of Pentecost week and the day and Trinity Sunday week, I gave you a, a, a long explanation about how the propers work. Now, we are now in the second half of the liturgical season. The first half is Advent to Pentecost. The second half is the Sundays after Pentecost, beginning with Trinity Sunday, 
which we call Trinity Sunday, to the last Sunday after Pentecost, which we call Christ the King Sunday. So the beginning is called Trinity Sunday, and the end is called Christ the King Sunday. And what we will find in this second half of the liturgical season is we will find a real continuity with the scriptures. For example, this week, we're going to be looking at the book of Numbers, and then we're going to be looking at a continuation of the study of Romans, and then we will continue in the Gospels with Matthew. And guess what? Next week, we're going to be in Numbers, and we're going to be in Romans, and we're going to be in Matthew. So you are systematically working through these books. So I hope that you enjoy the reading of Numbers and Romans and Matthew. And what I'd like to do now is just take you through them and make some uh, highlights, mark some highlights, provide a little bit of analysis, and encourage you to enjoy your week of reading the Daily Lectionary. Again, I hope that you will hear the Lord speak to you uh, in the scriptures. You might provide yourself a commentary, particularly something like Romans or Matthew. If you have a study Bible, you might look at the section uh, at the bottom of the Bible that talks about what that scripture refers to and what it means. Of course, it's not like a commentary, which is much more expanded, much lengthier, a little bit more academic, sometimes has a, some spiritual insights that are very important. But at least in the bottom of your um, study Bible, if you have one, you'll get some idea of what the scripture may be about if you don't know anything about it. Now, Numbers is a very interesting book. It's in the Pentateuch. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And after Numbers, we'll be looking at Deuteronomy, by the way. Numbers, we are in Numbers 14. You'll see that on your post. And we are in 14, 26 to 45. And this chapter 14 is a very, very significant chapter. If you go back to verse 1, we talked about this last week. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land all, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So Moses and Aaron fall face down. Now, the problem is the congregation is revolting against them. And the Lord is not happy with that. We begin in verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of those grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Look at verse 31. Uh, he said, not one of you will enter the land. This is the land that, they, remember, they went out and scouted it. And 10 of them said, we can't take that land. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, we can take it. And because they did not believe, the vast majority of those 12 did not believe, the Lord is going to prevent them all except a few, from going into the land. Watch this. As for your children, verse 31, that you said you would take as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. 
Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years. 40 years. Suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years. One year. For each of the 40 days you explored the land. They explored the land for 40 days. They came back with a report of the land that they were going to take. That God had already said he was going to give them. And they said, we cannot, we cannot take this land. There's too many people. We can't defeat them. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. To have me against you. Wow. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in the desert. Here they will die. So he says in verse 38, Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephune, survived. And so the people sinned against the Lord. And what finally happened is that they were all killed as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And God judged them harshly because they did not trust the Lord. They did not believe that God could deliver them and help them and save them. Numbers 14 is a very important chapter in the Old Testament. In chapter 16, we have a reading, Korah, Dathan, and Ibaram. Korah, Dathan, and Ibaran, leaders. Look at verse 4. Moses hears information, falls down. In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. They rose up against Moses. This group of people rose up against Moses, and they were insolent. And this is in verse 2. And with them, 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron. You've gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them. The Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? So he says in the morning, the Lord's going to show us who's right, who's not. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. So now the people are revolting and they're rising up against Moses. Boy, that's a tough place to be in. And Moses went through a lot, didn't he? And so he tells this fantastic story of what happens. And please enjoy that particular reading. Again, these readings are quite long, and I don't have enough time to go through them all with you. But just to get, kind of give you the setup and see what God does with these folks. Verse 42, just to pique your interest. When the whole assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward this tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting. The Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Brothers and sisters, you do not want the Lord against you. You do, you do not want the Lord opposing you. You do not want the Lord judging you. You and I want to be on God's side. We want God to fight for us. We want to put our faith in the Lord. We want to trust the Lord. What's so great about numbers in these early books is we see what happens when people obey the Lord and we see what happens when they do not. And then, of course, the plague is going to start. And it's so sad. Remember, God can marshal so many forces against us. So I want to remember to be diligent 
in doing what the Lord says and listening to his voice and repenting of my sins as soon as possible because he is able to do profoundly significant things to us when we do not obey him and we do not trust him. So we pray for God to have mercy on us. There's also a reading in chapter 17, and then we go to chapter 20 as we close the week. Water from the rock. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They're still in opposition. They quarreled. If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community in this desert that we and the livestock should die there? See, remember, they're wandering. There's a large group of people. There's tremendous opposition to Moses, as I said earlier. Moses has got to deal with this and somehow get the people that are going to actually get to go to the promised land. He's got to get them there. And the rest of them, remember, are going to die out in this 40-year process. He now, they now show up at a place where there's no water. Well, it's not going to take long for everybody to die if there's no water. So Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. They're, going to, they're seeking the Lord. The glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff that you and your Aaron, brother Aaron, gather assembly together and gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes. It will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and the livestock can drink. Now, that's a phenomenal miracle, isn't it? God is providing water out of a rock. And so it was as we go through the 20th chapter and continue our journey into Numbers. Painful, difficult journey, uh, lots of uh, resistance, um, uh, lack of community support, very difficult They had to call on the name of the Lord. They had to repent before the Lord. There was wrath. There was judgment. There was loss. And so we will pick up this journey with numbers. But enjoy 14, 16, 17, and 20. Romans chapter 3. As I said last week, Romans is one of the great books of the Bible. And some people consider it to be uh, uh, Paul's greatest work. The third chapter is a very profound chapter, chapter 3, 21 to 31, where we begin 21 to 31. Now, in verses 11 to 18, he told us that there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one is good, no, no, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no one, in verse 20, that's declared righteous in his sight by observing the law Now he starts in verse 21. Now our righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, verse 22, from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Brothers and sisters, we have no righteousness. None. All we have is sin to offer God. And so in the justification by faith by which we are saved, We offer our sin, and Jesus dies for us, and he gives us his righteousness. This righteousness comes through God, through our faith in Jesus. This is why our repentance of our sins and our faith in Jesus as Lord is crucial in terms of going to heaven. 
There's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to be righteous by taking our sin and imputing to us his righteousness. That comes about by his grace, the freedom of his grace, and our faith in Jesus Christ. Enjoy chapter 3, 21 to 31. Fabulous text. In chapter 4, we see Abraham justified by faith. Now we need to go to the Old Testament and talk about justification by faith in the Old Testament. And of course, Abraham was one of those people that was justified by faith. Again, let me remind you what that is. To be justified is to be declared innocent. It's a law term. It's a legal term. You want to be declared innocent by the judge when we are judged. Who's the judge? Jesus. He's the judge. He is the judge. The innocence that we are going to have is based on the fact that Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness so that when we are judged, he sees righteousness, not sin. If he sees sin, there's no covering for sin. See, the covering was made by his blood. The blood of Jesus covers us from sin. But if it's just me and my sin and no Jesus, I'm guilty and I'm going to be separated from God. So in chapter four, we see in chapter four, we see someone that has been justified by faith. And in reading this through, you want to see how that is done through Abraham. In chapter five, we have a fabulous text. Since we're justified by through faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're justified by through faith today, remember, that's the only way you can get justified. Your faith in Christ, your repentance of your sins, and your faith in Christ. You're following Christ. He is your good shepherd. You are listening to him, and you are obeying his word. You have peace with God through Jesus. You don't have any problems with God Almighty, the first person of the Holy Trinity, because Jesus Christ has provided your acquittal. You are not guilty. Let's read on. Hope does not disappoint us, verse 5, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us, whom he has given us. So you and I have the Holy Spirit, and God has given us hope. The hope is not in ourselves. The hope is what Christ has done. As he says earlier, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God, verse 8, demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, still sinning against him, Jesus died for us. In his death for us, he takes upon himself our sins. He imputes to us his righteousness. Now, what does impute mean? He is giving me his righteousness. I am not earning his righteousness. I cannot merit his righteousness because I'm not righteous. So, But it comes to me as a free gift. It's a fantastic movement of God in my life. It is God's righteousness imputed to us because we have faith in God 
faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, our lives given over to Jesus by his grace. This is an act of tremendous grace on God's part. Let's look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, this is Adam, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's the doctrine of original sin right there. Adam sins against God, Genesis 1, Genesis 3. Adam is guilty. Sin comes into the world. Before that, there is no sin. Death comes through sin because sin corrupts and destroys. And death comes to all of us because we're now all sinners. It's passed on from generation to generation. Now, who is going to solve this problem? How can I be restored to right relationship with God? And how can I break this cycle of sin? Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, remember grace, and of the gift of righteousness, remember the imputation of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ is such a big deal. He's the one who not only died for our sins, substituted himself for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, the wrath of God against our sins, but he has provided for us a way and means to be reconciled to God. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what's, what happens when sin is fully born? Death. But where sin increased, grace increased. Thank God. Now grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus. So if Jesus is not greater than Sin, we're all doomed. If grace is not greater than sin, we're all doomed. Sin is extremely powerful, but grace increases even more. Sin reigns in death, but grace reigns in righteousness, which results in eternal life in Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad. Fantastic news. Finally, in chapter 6, love 1 through 11. So, what about living a new life? Well, we are to no longer be slaves to sin, verse 6. Count yourselves dead to sin, verse 11, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We do not have permission to keep on sinning. We do not have permission to keep making the same sinful mistakes. He says we died to sin, verse 2. How can we live it any longer? If we've been united with him in the, his death, verse 5, we'll be united with him in his resurrection. We should no longer be slaves to sin, Paul tells us. We've died with Christ. Let us live with him, verse 8. These scriptures in Romans are fantastic. The scriptures in Numbers are very, very good this week. A lot to think about. And you see the power of sin. The power of sin kept them out of the promised land for 40 years. Ten people said no. Two people said yes. Ten people didn't trust God. Two people did. Trust the Lord and follow him.
Let's continue in our journey with Jesus in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 13. So we are looking at the little children in Jesus in 13 to 22, and we're looking at the rich young man who wanted to follow Jesus, but when push came to shove, he didn't. It's a very poignant text because he did not want to get rid of his possessions. Let the little children come to me, verse 14, do not hinder them for this kingdom of heaven belongs to these. So he placed his hands on them and he went on from there. Beautiful exposition about the importance of children and the importance of being like a child so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, then we juxtapose that to the rich man who kept all the commandments but was unable to follow Jesus because he didn't want to give up his wealth. Beautiful reading and very poignant. All right, Matthew, let's also look at Matthew 21 to 16, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. <laughs> Boy, that's an arresting parable. Basically, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy this, read it very closely. It's a wonderful parable about those that get paid the same, whether they, regardless of what time they start. So they all get the same wages. So the workers who were hired at the 11th hour received a denarius, and those who were hired first received a denarius. That doesn't sound fair, does it? Shouldn't the person that worked the longest get more than the other person? They began to grumble. Friend, am I being unfair to you, verse 13? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your money and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want to do with my own money? One more time, brothers and sisters, God's in charge. He has the money. He dispenses it. He can do whatever he wants to do. As the writer says, are you envious because I am generous? So the first will be last and the last will be first. The last will be first, the first will be last. Very strong principle of the kingdom. Jesus tells us in a very... Um, again, poignant, powerful parable. It doesn't seem equitable, but remember God's in charge. Rejoice and be glad for what you have. Matthew chapter 20, 17 to 19, he again predicts his death. He tells us three times he's going to die, but he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day. The mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, they kneeled down. They said, what do you want? And she said, mom did to Jesus, grant that one of my two sons may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Lady, do you have any idea what you're talking about? The 10 heard about this. They were indignant. Jesus called them together. Whoever wants to be great, boy, what a great principle of the kingdom, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For all of us who want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant. Be the servant. If you want to be first, be a slave. 
another great teaching from Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, we have two men that receive their sight. So we've got some teaching again. We've got this tremendous miracle. Can you imagine someone having the skill, the ability, the power to uh, heal someone that is blind? We want our sight, verse 33. Jesus has compassion on them, touches their eyes, they receive their sight, and they follow him. Then finally, in Matthew 21, we have the triumphal entry. Remember, I made reference to that for Palm Sunday. When they go in Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're just repeating some uh, psalms. Hosanna in the highest. And they're all excited about Jesus. This is Jesus, verse 11, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, they're all excited. But a few days, several days later, he's going to be crucified. But Jesus has to go to Jerusalem to die. So we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And we'll pick that up next week. <music>